you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing in Phoenix, Arizona, this weekend at the Phoenix Film Festival at the horror sci-fi version of the festival. I will be there in person on April 2nd for the movie. So hopefully if you're in the area or at the festival, you should come meet me. And then, yeah, the movie will be out later for the rest of everyone to see uh, later this year. I love Phoenix Film Festival. I am Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life on Showtime. I am a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Tarek Saleh on the show to talk about his latest feature, The Contractor, what it was like to win Sundance with his feature, The Nile Hilton Incident, and what it was like directing Westworld, and why he said yes to make The Contractor when he could pretty much make anything he wanted at that time. And still now, it sounds like. After that, we discuss an article from The Hollywood Reporter about a new $55,000 grant for first and second time filmmakers to work on a TV show for development, you know, whatever. And lastly, we answer a listener question. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm good. I never remember to think about how to answer this question. I'm doing well. The answer is I'm doing well. I'm very anxious because I'm trying to find a lead producer for the project that I have that's like the most put together. We have like a lot of non-lead producers and we don't have a lead producer And I realize it's like the major thing that's stopping us from making any progress because we talk to sales companies and they'll kind of evaluate us, but we we don't have enough oomph for them, for them to say yes to us. And I think a key to that is a level of organization that it comes with a lead producer and also a level of experience and a higher budget level that we don't have. So I am... If I'm, I'm supposed to be interviewing producers this week, but it really feels like they're interviewing me. And it is like very stressful because I'm just like, how do I be really, really honest with them about the commitment level and what we need, but also sound super enticing about this exciting opportunity for them? And so I, it, it makes me super antsy. How are you? Well, are you offering them a rate for this or is it like built into, into the, the budget? budget? Yeah, into the budget. Yeah. But we have access But it's a good one. I mean, like we have access to development funds. So like I think there could be a world where I could be like, hey, development funder, we need a stipend for this person to come on board. And that person would have a level of value that I think they would merit the stipend. So is it a good rate? It depends. We have a we have one budget level, which is like a certain level of producer's fee, and then we can scale up from there depending on what the actual budget will be. So, and what I'm saying is like, it's negotiable. You know, if they were to say, I have to have X, like we could probably make a lot happen. And how are you finding these producers that you're pitching or interviewing? Well, I started just by posting on with the, so I went to USC film school and we have this, we have certain alumni Facebook groups and I went to one called USC producers and I, asked for exactly what I wanted. And I got two bites. But the majority of other responses were from composers who are like, please hire me, as (laughs) per usual. Always the composers. (laughs) Always those damn composers. They're so good. They're so good at, at selling themselves. So that was my first, you know, attempt. And then my second attempt will be probably going wide on something like Twitter. But we need... Like a requirement or prerequisite is someone who's dealt in the budget level of 
the 800 to 5 million and at least two features in the role of lead producer. Like it needs to be Mm. someone who has handled this kind of money before. Mm -hmm. So that's fun, but it makes me like super anxious for some reason. It feels like a job interview. Like, and you can't, Mm -hmm. I can't get anything done until we have these conversations. So I'm, my chat today is at one. So at one 30, I'll be a lot more calm of a human being. And and you don't have any of the actual money from the movie set aside. You have development money, but you don't have like half of the 800 or anything, right? Okay. We have a casting director. We have two attached talent and we have like key crew. That seems to be the thing. It's like whenever I I ask my producer, Jeff, about how these movies get made, it always starts with, they came to me with X amount of dollars. The director came to me with this. The, The writer came to me with this. The producer brought me to this, this project when it had X. That's kind of how he looks at it. It's like if there's money behind it, then, you know, he, he'll jump on board. But he doesn't want to be the one to find the first money towards, you know, an 800 to $5 million well, movie or whatever. What's funny to us, because we have the attached talent and because of the, we have the casting director, we are going to sales companies. And we actually would be way more attractive to a sales company if we had an experienced producer. So we're not necessarily asking for a fundraising producer. We're just looking for someone who's going to actually produce. And I'm not even talking about on the ground line producing. I mean, to be our captain. And right. I, I think that's exciting, but it's also probably intimidating because they look at a project and they say, well, well, you have like five producers. And actually we don't. We have five people in the producing department who are not getting lead producer credit, which is not uncalled for. But what I'm saying is like, yeah, absolutely. You always need money in order to get talent or crew attachments. But somehow we skirted that and we have a level of attachments that most projects with money have, but we don't have the money. But yeah, no, I feel like what I'm, what I think it's going to an enticing offer to a producer who has experience. Like, because I think if you include the part where you kind of have a line to fundraising, you know, like you, you have relationships with sales companies that are interested in the project, given that they have the right team attached to it. Like, I think you know, an experienced producer who's done this a bunch of times is probably going to be interested in this as long as they like the project. Because it all comes down to the project. Like the project has to be enticing. And if it's not, then no one gives a shit. You know, usually <laughs> it seems that way. But I would, I would say that if the script's not good, but I feel like people hardly read scripts. It's mostly like, does a project sound cool? Does it sound interesting? Is there an edge that I like about it? Then okay, then I'll, then I'll look at it. I'll be a part of it. I I think the script doesn't matter for a lot of parties. And I've totally said the exact same thing before. But I did find I talked to I pitched to a producer yesterday. And I would say my pitch was really weak up until she asked me why I wanted to do the film. And then I told her about my love for the script and my love for this opportunity. And for some reason, that seemed to garner her attention a little bit more. Mm. So it's like, I think the script doesn't matter. But as long as someone cares about the script. Like right. you need someone who loves the script to be involved. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, exactly. You, I mean, I think like the director has to love it, right? <laughs> yes. And the director has to, to like really be like so passionate about. It. I think the passion of of the person, the creative behind it, is really a, a lot of what draws people in too, yeah. for sure. I'm fine. I'm doing okay. <laughs> Your life sounds way more exciting than mine right now. No, no. <laughs> I want to be pitching producers and interviewing producers. That sounds like a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, just writing still a little bit up to page 23, I think, from like Ooh. whatever. So it's climbing. It's very slow. Yeah. It's very slow. But it's at least going, which is better than usually. 
I'm like reading a script right now that I've been reading for way longer than I read all the other scripts. It's because I don't like it very much. No offense to the writer. It's just, I'm like on page 100 of 119 and I like, I'm just like trying to finish the script. 19 more to go. And you're, um, <laughs> no, it's so, it's just, there. I mean, it's one of those things where like the beginning of the script was really enticing and interesting. And then like it slowed down like in the middle and dragged ass, you know, forever. You know, then it became like a big budget movie. And it was sort of sent to me in the guise that this could be a low budget movie. And I'm like, not now it can't. <laughs> you have to rewrite the whole thing from page one, you know, but I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a cool story. It's fun. I, I think there's a good movie in there, but like, it really has to be like, they'd have to like rip it apart and rewrite it. And I, and I kind of get the sense that the writers are kind of interested in doing that because like they, they haven't had any traction with it, but I, I don't know, like in my very, because I can't really offer them anything. It's like, I can't commit to the project. I can't say, I will make this movie if you write it. You know, it's like, all I can say is like, I'll read it when it's done. Right. <laughs> and hopefully I like it. If I don't, then there's nothing I can do, you know? But, so. but you're laying out, like, and I think my situation too, is laying out why things take so long and why making movies is so hard, right? Because it's like, you've got 15 different factions with 15 different goals and they're all looking for something else and no one is able to commit to anything unless they know for sure it's what they what fits within, you know, your purview or your jurisdiction. So it's like these yeah. writers they could rewrite it but then you might not like that version of the rewrite and then they right. wasted 6 months and then, you know, they have to go down the road with another person. It's just like it's exhausting just thinking about the timelines of all of these right. projects. That's why nothing ever gets made. And I think it's hard for writers, too, because they have so many projects. And it's like, if it's not the thing that they love to death, they're just going to write it based off the notes that some shimo like me gives them. And then th then they'll be even more divorced from the script. And then it's th it takes even longer to get it, it made because they don't care about it as much anymore. And it's all about how much you care about it. Like, that's the thing that matters the most. Like, you really have to... Like, I love what our guest today said in the interview, a spoiler alert. He basically says something like, don't make the movie unless you have to, you know? And like, I felt that urge and that need with the alternate. And now it's like, I'm desperately looking for the next project that will, I will have that same feeling for. And there's definitely some possibilities out there. It's just like, I, I basically realized that the script brother that I was like pitching, like I'm not, it's not that movie. It's just, I don't need it to be made, you know? And maybe it will be in the next draft, but the way it is now, it doesn't need to be made the way it is now. And so it's, and I'm working with another writer on it. So like he needs to, to rewrite the movie and, and, you know, be willing to do that. And I know he's interested in doing that, but he also has other projects that he's working on that are more important than, than this one. And so it's like, then I have to convince him that the ideas that I have to make it are the right ideas, you know, to, to change it, to make it better. And then it's just a hard thing, you know, collaboration is, is tricky. I don't know. I feel like it's worth it to put all the time into all these things because eventually you will find the one that you like, you know, care about more than anything and you have to make, you know, I just wish I was like Alan C. Gardner that I like, felt like I had to make everything that I wrote. <laughs> it just is like, yeah, I <laughs> like that. I have to make this. I'm going to go out and make it like, cause like, cause that's obviously how he feels. Like he just, you know, he makes what he made 16 movies and he just keeps on making movies. And I guess he must have that feeling for each one he does. But like, I just, it's hard for me to like, feel that way. Like it really needs to deserve to exist in order for me to want to make it. It can't just be a movie. It has to be like a movie that matters, you know? Well, I think that's pretty noble that, that you're, that you have those principles. 
I I don't have the same principles. <laughs> In that, like, if it's something that I'm writing, I do have to, like, put my heart and soul into it or at least put parts of me into it. And then putting that into the world, that's kind of therapeutic, right? I put myself into it. It's out in the world. It comes back and I see myself and storytelling and other people in whole new lights. But for me, it's, is there something about that film that grabs me, that excites me, that I, that I want to be a part of bringing to life? It doesn't have to be perfect. Because I think you're, be, you're growing as an artist. You're not going to make the film perfect. You're not a perfect director, but you need to work on things. So it's like, you know, these genre films that I'm a, a, attached to, I mean, there's an exception. One is like a really personal genre film that I've been working with the writer for a long time, but I want to work on action sequences or I want to work on the feeling of dread in a film. And to me, that's motivation enough to try to get the project off the ground. But you're like, I love the way you're putting it. You're like saying, okay, just to go back, but you put like seven years into the alternate, right? Right. And I think that's also coloring your experience where I don't think you're going to have to put, I hope not that you're not going to have to put seven more years into another project. Maybe it's five years into two projects, you know? I mean, if someone came to me with a script and it was like, hey, we need a director. Will you direct this movie? And we will hire you to do it. The budget's in place. Then that's a different situation. But if, but if I have to do everything myself and I have to raise the budget from scratch, like the same way I did with the alternate, like it really does have to matter. But like, yeah, yeah, if I was able to attach myself to something that had other people involved and, you know, we were working as a team and like I, I wasn't solely responsible for the budget and for bringing the movie into existence, then I think then, and yeah, there's, there's, there's things to find that you like about things. And, you know, I still want to make sure it's a movie that I like, but yeah, it's probably less you know, of a weighty thing. But like, if you're going to put the time and like, you know, take time away from my daughter and, you know, like really, really like have to do it all over again, then it, it definitely needs to be important, you know? Yeah. Or at least like something that like, I, I really feel like I can, like people are going to dig that I would want to watch that if I was like, like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. Like, oh, this sounds really interesting. Like, oh, that, let's check this movie out, you know? That kind of thing. But if it's just like another monster movie that like doesn't have like the emotional core, you know, that like I feel like the alternate has, like then I, I don't know, if, or, or, or thematic core even. I don't know. I just feel like, like I just got an, like this is really small and stupid, but like I just got an email from somebody yesterday who watched my movie at the Miami Sci-Fi Film Festival over the weekend. And they just said how much they love the movie. They thanked me for making it, you know, and like they really like they wish me luck and they really hope that people actually get to see it and that it reaches a wide audience. And it's like getting that kind of message. It's like that movie connected with somebody enough where they felt the urge to look me up, find my email address and then write me a little email saying that they like the movie. And it's like, like, I don't know, like, like, is any movie going to do that? Like, I don't know, maybe, but like probably only the ones where you actually put yourself into it in some way or that you see yourself in it that like a writer put, put in, put themselves into their script or something. So it really needs to be like something important or like, what's the point? And like, like, are you going to have that kind of reaction? Even if it's just from one person, like, I don't know, maybe not. So I totally agree with you. And I think what, what also, maybe it's already been said, but maybe I'll just say it again, but one of the I'll, I'm going to call out one of the writers I'm working with right now. His name is Josh Evans, and he wrote this script called Thin Blue Veins. And like a big chunk of the reason, I mean, it's a fantastic script. It's really well written, and I I'm like in love with 
two of the main characters. And there's a lot of reasons why I want to do it. But I think another part of it is because it matters so much to Josh. And that's so exciting to be like, oh, you really fucking care about this movie. That makes me care about it. And when we get notes, he has like a treatise that he writes down of why he took the (laughs) note or why he didn't take the note and what's important to keep and what's not. And so it just made me think like, because originally I was like, all right, Josh, let's work together. This sounds cool. There's enough in here that I like. But what keeps me going is like, is his passion, because I think you're right. Unless if that author is, if that writer is just punching numbers or whatever, if they're just kind of like addressing notes without any care and and no one's protecting the core of the film, it does come off as soulless. And then it's like, why? Why did you do it? You're totally right. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be the director or or the writer. It could be the producer. It just, there needs to be somebody who's like the advocate for the movie, who's just like, this thing has to happen or I'm going to die trying to make this movie. (laughs) I love that. So, I don't know. I mean, I've just been thinking about that for the last 24 hours and like how that's sort of what I've been feeling lately. And, you know, Tarek put it so succinctly in our interview. He really laid it out in a way that like, it's like, that's exactly how I feel. (laughs) (laughs) And like hearing how he like wasn't sure about the contractor and then he met with Chris Pine and then he was like, I have to make this movie because Chris Pine is so amazing and like we can make something really special together. It's like that sort of thing. It's awesome. It's just, it's amazing. So, I don't know. It really got me pumped, that conversation. I just felt like, ready to go. But it's also a gut thing. Like, I just going back on the Roger Nygaard episode that was just released, you know, he said that well, Larry David just does things based off of his gut, you know? And I think that's what you're doing, too. It's like, do, do I feel it? Do I feel the importance? Do I feel like this is right? It's amazing how little data goes into it. It's just like, my feelings. Yeah. You got to feel it. Another thing that you can feel is our love when you go to www.patreon.com slash podcast and support us on Patreon. It is the way the show keeps on moving forward. We are trying to give more love to Patreon the last month or so, doing like we release our, you know, our daily, our weekly meetings only for Patreon subscribers. So if you're, you can't hear it, extra bonus content, you don't want to hear our ramblings with our producer, Eric, if you don't subscribe, which people maybe don't even know about because only a couple of them have views, but we're going to keep on putting them out there. Content Actually, is important. I looked at the last staff meeting and we got the comments and we got more views. So I do actually think they're being watched. So yeah, people, if you want to know what, what the comments are, what the, ha- what the hap is, what the, what the, you know, the inside scoop, the behind the scenes, yeah, sign up for our Patreon. Only, a, you know, do a dollar, you'll get access. 50, I don't think you can do 50 cents. I think you have to do a dollar. But if you do $2, you'll get access to the whole back catalog of the show, which is slowly, slowly, slowly disappearing from Apple Podcasts and iTunes and everything. So, you know, there's still, most of the episodes are out now, but slowly and surely, it'll only be 50 plus episodes. So if you want access to all the amazing conversations we've had over the years, especially the Timothy days, which are long, long gone, Sign up for our Patreon, and you can uh, listen to those episodes. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues, which actually used in the trailer for the alternate, which is like, it's not released yet. It's like the international trailer, which will be pumped out when the movie starts getting distributed internationally. So, I can attest. It's a good service. 
They even have customized plans to fit your needs. So like if you don't want to pay what they have on their plan, you can customize it. You can pay whatever you want for whatever you need from their site because they offer lots of things. They do trailers, sound effects, they do music, they do score stuff, they do just sound effects. It's, it's a lot on there. So anyways, check them out and you can use our code MMIH to get a 20% discount on their service. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Tarek Saleh. So starting us off, can you give us like the elevator pitch for the contractor? Tell us what it's about. Yeah. So it's it's about James, who is a Green Beret, who is uh, basically being discharged from the army and is being honorably discharged, but he loses his pension and health care, which means that he needs a job, you know? So he uh, he gets a contracting job and that doesn't go so well. <laughs> That's not a great pitch, but like, you know, I made the film. Like, like I don't have to pitch it anymore. <laughs> no, but I, I, I will say that it's an action thriller. It's a character-driven action thriller, which is important, I think, because it's rare these days with that. It is driven by his choices, which I think is interesting. And then how many days did you shoot the film? Oh, it's probably 60. Wow. Wow. So jealous over here. <laughs> yeah, like, oh we're, <laughs> we're filmmakers yeah, yeah. as well, by the way. So that's why we ask a lot of process questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but ask, ask. Like, yeah, no, I lately, you know, I shot the film after the contractor that I'm in post with now that had 47 days. Mm. And the film before that was 43 days. When I was shooting Westworld, I think I ended up shooting 22 days for an episode. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I say that there is something to when you don't have much time, you want more days, but there is also a limit where you start to get really exhausted. Yeah. So I think the sweet spot is somewhere around 45 days. <laughs> Good to know. What can you speak up with regard to the budget of the film? It was... It was a good budget for this film. It's what they call a mid-range budget. In this, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say exactly the number, but I will say that the number was good. It was surprising because most films nowadays are either very high or very low, <laughs> and this was like the old school kind of action thriller budget, which I like. I, I think I was very lucky with the budget. And then how did you end up a part of the film? I had a relationship with Thunder Road. And right after I won Sundance, I was meeting with Basil, who's the founder and who owns Thunder Road. And uh, I really liked him. And he liked me. And we were sort of saying, like, let's, let's make a film together. And uh, we were trying to find a project. He was sending me scripts, but none of them really connected with me. And... Uh, then this came and I read it and I, I fell in love with the script. And I was excited when I heard that Chris Pine was attached to it. I had never met Pine at the time. And I went and had a meeting with him in New York. It's not hard to fall in love with Chris Pine. I can tell you that. I mean, uh, most people that meet him just falls in love with him. But I also, the second time we met, I also connected with him on a personal level. I felt that we had some sort of shared vision of what this film could be. 
you know and i think that's very important it's it's not to be underestimated because you make the film to the beauty of filmmaking is that you make it together with with people you're a group that make the film and it's very important that that group have the same vision and that's the difficult part to make sure that you want to make the same film how long did you spend working on this film from being brought on talking with Thunder Road to its eventual release? Three years, I think. Three years. We started 2018, I think. Mm. And then we, you know, so, I mean, uh, of course, the film has been ready now for some time. But we, because of the pandemic, too, we were very lucky that we shot, like, I mean, 90% of the film was shot before the pandemic even was a thing, before we even knew what... It was. It was just some people that were sick in Wuhan, Wuhan, and you know, we all of us were never going to get it, you know. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, and that of course changed a lot of things for all of us. Um, so the post production happened all through COVID, but we were editing in Denmark and in Sweden. And Denmark, Denmark closed down after a while. Sweden never closed down, you know. We never closed down as a society. So we could continue to work, basically. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one to make? I think all films are difficult to make. I, I must say that this is not more difficult than the other films I've made. The things that are difficult with uh, working in Hollywood is that there is so many people that have power. So you have to sort of navigate that especially as a European filmmaker, we have Final Cut as a sort of a default in Europe because of the author kind of system. And to be honest, I didn't even know what it meant not to have Final Cut before this experience, you know. And I think it's been an interesting experience to not have Final Cut because you have to reverse because when, when you have final cut you still have to listen you know otherwise you're an idiot you know <laughs> but like you, you know you, when you have final when you don't have final cut you have to convince people that takes a lot of energy of course but i think that the partners on this film ha, ha, have been great and they i mean i mean i must say the producers are very experienced people i respect so i mean the discussions have always been very interesting and then I knew from both from Westworld and from doing directing Ray Donovan that the system of the star system is sort of in there, you know, in even in TV, it works like that, you know, that you have to sort of, I mean, in Europe, you know, the actors don't have power like they have in the States and, and for good and bad. I, I mean, I don't, I, I think that there are good things with that the actors have power because the actors also have power over the studio <laughs> and, you know, over everyone, you know, so you can actually use that. But uh, sometimes I think it's good when the director has the ultimate power, because ultimately film, especially film, is a director's medium. Can we talk a little bit about that final cut? What decisions did you come up against where the final cut was, the concept of final cut was challenged, so to speak? I mean, did people want more genre conventions and you had to convince them otherwise or were there certain tropes that that like improved marketability that challenged your sense of final cut no you know i want to correct one thing that i said that when i signed the paper that i didn't have final cut when i actually physically did it 
because I, of course I knew, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are directors in Hollywood and, you know, that make much bigger films than I do. So I, I knew about it, but I didn't know emotionally what it feels like to sign that paper and to understand. So I didn't walk in like thinking that I was going to, you know, say like, no, my way or the highway. I knew <laughs> that my role here was, it's more, you know, I would say you're a captain on a ship. You don't own the ship. You're a captain. You're staring it. You're telling it where it should go. Luckily for me, I knew that the people I was working with was people I respected and that that was going to be a collaborative process. But what I mean is that normally, and this is a, but because you're filmmakers, I feel like it's interesting to talk about that when you have Final Cut that, that I grew up with, I had Final Cut before I deserved it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where I shouldn't have had Final Cut. And what I'm trying to say is that at that time, Still, if somebody tells you something like, I think you should cut this thing, the difference is that you actually listen more when you have final cut. So it was actually not what I was expecting. I had to learn not to be defensive, you know, because I knew I didn't have the final say. I had to convince people. But at the same time, I have to listen as much as I did when I have Final Cut, when I have the ultimate power. It sounds, it sounds complicated, but it actually is interesting to me. And it, of course, I think that there is something nice with not having the ultimate responsibility, because you can sort of be the artist. When you have the ultimate responsibility, when you have Final Cut, you are de facto also a producer. You, know? you are sort of responsible for this film, whether it's going to reach out or not. And with this, the commerciality aspect of it, I honestly think that that's always speculation. I don't believe anyone knows what's commercial or not, except if you have some, if you can have Spider-Man, yes, that's commercial, <laughs> period. You know, it's like, you know, where if it's some Lego, you know, it's commercial, it's already been sold. So that's, of course, it's commercial. But to say that it's more commercial with a happy ending, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. The Joker tells us otherwise, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's, you know. Just to push on that a little bit more, like what was, was there one or two things that you that you came, like you had to argue and fight for? And like, did you win all the arguments and all the, like the, the times you had to convince people that, of the way that you wanted to tell the story? Or were there some times where you had to like throw in the towel and be like, no, no, like it has to go the other way. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious like, yeah, for the details. No, yeah, that's that. But that's, it, that is sort of what's interesting with coming from a tradition of Final Cut, of having Final Cut, that I could identify with the people that had Final Cut. So I never really thought it's actually an easy position if you accept that, okay, you have Final Cut. Are you sure that you want to go this way? <laughs> You know, because I believe that we should go this way. And, you know, I'll say this. I think that Hollywood, it's an amazing place. It's a place of dreams. But there is also a place where people, a lot of people want just power. But, you know, it's different to just have power. It's not so nice to have responsibility. No one wants responsibility. That's, that's boring, right? Because then you have to live by your decisions. So as a director, you are responsible and I am responsible for this film. And I knew that there is no, I mean, 
we we're making a film together, but ultimately as a director, you're responsible for the film. This is my film and I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of every decision we took together on it. And I would say that there were times when there was something dysfunctional that I liked early on. And I knew it was dysfunctional. That was something, and it's very small. No one will ever care, you know, except me, you know. And I knew that those things were, was going to be difficult because, of course, like dysfunctional things scares people. <laughs> I mean, everyone. It, and, and, you know, I also accept, I, I, you know, I think as a director, it's my prerogative to be wrong. That's sort of like, you know, it is part of it. And some of the best things out there are things that are a little bit dysfunctional. Because I think that there is a difference between a good film and a functional film, you know? I think that there is something in, in Hollywood that you guys said, probably have heard many times. Yeah, that film was very effective. You know, people say that as that's a compliment. And I think that's, you know, that's agents talking, right? It was very effective. I, I had time to see two films before lunch. It was extremely effective. But I think that people that actually buy cinema tickets, they don't want an effective film. I mean, they didn't get the babysitter, parked their car, bought a fucking $13 ticket to have an effective experience. They wanted an experience, right? So we as, as filmmakers have to defend that. And <laughs> sometimes I said, you hired me to defend this film against you, you know? <laughs> we all love this kid, the film, all of us, the studio, the producers, the actors, we all love it. But everyone gets scared. I get scared too. And then at that time, it's where you have to basically say, okay, let's not be scared. Let's jump. Let's do this. Let's tell it like, you know. So for me, I must say that Eric and Basil and Esther are amazing producers in that way, that they are very filmmaker friendly. I mean, they, they stand behind their filmmakers. And I mean, you, if you see the films that Thunder Road have made, you know, you know that. But I think that there is also reality. I mean, a film that cost, I mean, let's put it this way. It cost more than $25 million then there will be people that will want their money back. You know what I mean? Like, that's for sure. I mean, so if I'm on some art house trip, wanted to do some artistic statement that no one understands, turn my back towards the audience and shit like that, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe someone says, hey, hey, Tarek, <laughs> sorry, let's be a little bit more sort of friendly towards the audience. But I think that they listened to me and I think they brought me on, in, on to direct this film because they like the film that won Sundance, which is a kind of a, a dark and gritty film. So I think they wanted that. They wanted my DNA in it. I mean, they liked the. I mean, I'm a very sort of a 70s. I like the French connection and these hard-boiled genre films. I love genres. So that wasn't a problem. Don't, I mean, don't tell me like, yeah. It, it needs to be more younger. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm in. But for me, the gods are, you know, Michael Mann and Sidney Lumet and these guys. They, they are my heroes. So that's sort of the people I, when I get depressed, when I get into a dark place, and, and it's never because of someone else. It's always my own faults or mistakes that make me depressed. I'm like, Tarek, what? 
you know, and especially, I mean, you as filmmakers know this, like when you watch dailies and you hear your shitty direction, it's, it's there forever for you to listen to. It's like the actor is on his way doing something ama amazing. And then you hear this voice cut. It's like, <laughs> what, what? Cut! He was on his way to a fucking Oscar performance here, and cut. And then you're like, okay, it doesn't end there, guys. Then you're like, okay, what is this smart ass gonna come up with? And then you hear, uh, could you bring it down? It's like, what? Really? He was on his way, and you're what? Like, fire this guy, fire this director, you know? And that's, I mean, it's a very humbling and, and great thing to do as a director, to watch your dailies and listen to your own fucking voice, you know, when you destroy great work, you know? Fortunately for me, <laughs> and I'm, I'm fortunate in that way that I've been, I've been doing it for a while now, and I've been working with the, all these amazing actors. I've been working with some of the best actors in the world and especially doing Westworld and these things where, you know, you get to work with these amazing actors, you know, you also learn to listen and you learn to step back and to just see great people work and to make sort of, to make sure that there are possibilities. So when doing this film, I knew that, okay, I have gold, I have gold in my hands. I'm not going to fuck it up. You know, it's like, not going to gel cut when when Ben Foster is about to deliver something great, you know. Not to take us off track too much, but I, you know, looking at your career, there's a lot of diversity in terms of modes of art, <laughs> you know. And so I just want to talk a little bit about. I mean, you don't have to give us a bio on how you got to this place, but is it an evolution getting to film? Was it film all along? Like, what is film's place amidst amidst all of the other mediums you work in? Yeah, so. I grew up, my father is a stop motion animator. So I grew up in an animation studio and he was one of the guys that built the uh, motion control. So he was a sort of a, you know, and to support his stop motion work, he was doing special effects back in the days before it was digital. So my first job was doing matte paintings in his studio. So I come from that background when, when I was in high school, because I was a graffiti artist, you know? So I sort of had it coming, you know, my father owns three Mitchell cameras, you know, he's like all the sort of lenses standing around. So I was sort of always seeped into that. And then I started doing documentary films. And at that time, it had low status because the budget was low. But everyone who's done the documentary know it's one of the most difficult techniques to work in because I don't consider documentary to be a genre. I actually consider it to be a technique. So I made documentary films and I was sort of scared to do feature films. And then the first film I did, Metropia, which was a sort of a fucked up animated film. You need to be high to appreciate it, but it's an interesting film in that, that I had the chance right off the bat to work with some of the greatest actors in the world. Vincent Gallo and Juliette Lewis is playing the main parts. And I learned a lot from them in working with actors because they are also very different. Vincent Gallo, who's also a director, he's very transparent with how he works. So you could see the intention he was doing when he was doing things. And then I had Stellan Skarsgård also working with him on that film. So I learned from them, these great actors. And then I did my first live action film, Tommy, 
which is a gangster film with a female lead. She's doing a sort of a, a wife of a deceased gangster who does a heist sort of against his old cameras. And that also had action in it, but it was low budget film. It that like $3 million film. So I shot it on 35. So that was one thing that I, because I'm, I'm, as you can tell, a film nerd. So I was like, on each turn, I took a chance to do things that a little bit different. Then after that, I did the Nile Hilton incident, the one that won Sundance. And that was a very personal film about Egypt and about corruption, a film noir. And that film catapulted me into a very, you know, sort of privileged situation where I could choose basically what I wanted to do after that. The first people I met, the the Monday after I had won Sundance, I stepped into HBO's office and they just said, what do you want to do? What do you want to direct? And I said, I, I had not watched TV for two years because I don't watch television when I when I work on features because it's very dangerous because television is so different. I mean, the storytelling is so different and you sort of, you start to think that, oh my God, I have to explain everything. You know, in film, it's different. You know, you experience the whole thing. Whereas in TV, you need to go out to the kitchen to get something and you can listen to the dialogue and just keep track on what things are happening, you know? So anyway, so I said, the only thing I had seen was Westworld because, because of this sort of, and I said, Westworld is, I like Westworld. And they say, can you meet Jonah and Lisa, Jonah, Nolan and Lisa? this Friday. And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yes, please. Yeah, sure. I, I can. So I went out there and, and Lisa was sort of pregnant. She was going to have a kid any second. And I went out to Kilter Film, their, their film company in Culver City and had a meeting with them and fell in love with them as people and as filmmakers. And we talked about Nile Hilton and we talked about Westworld. And then they contacted me a few weeks later and asked if I wanted to come on and, and direct for them. And I said, oh, hell yeah. I mean, it's shot on 35 Westworld and it's Western sci-fi summarize. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was like, I was pinching myself. I was like, what am I dreaming? Am I dreaming shooting on Vistas with guys riding on horses and samurai speaking Japanese? I was like, oh, I'm in heaven. It was incredible. And so I, I just loved it. And then I was shooting Ray Donovan in New York. And, and my episode is the episode where Ray breaks down in the middle of Times Square, which was amazing too, to be able to shoot these locations. That it was funny. I was talking to film producers that said, we can't shoot on Times Square these days. It's only TV that can do that, you know? <laughs> and so, so that was amazing to, to be able to do that. And all along, I was developing different things my own i i write i I mean my favorite part is writing it's what i like most to do and i wanted to continue to do films in arabic i think it's an undertold part of the world that i know something about but this was just too much fun to not do i think i i knew that the second time i met chris pine i sort of felt that you know it would be a huge mistake not to make this film together because he's just an amazing actor. And I think that the material was there to prove that. I think he's amazing in the film. I, I'm very proud of what we did together. I think he's just, yeah, there's something so raw with what he does. 
There's like a thousand questions uh, coming off of what you just said, you know, but I think what I want to pick to talk about is like the Sundance catapulting. So did you already have representation and management before you going into Sundance or did it, was it like you want Sundance and then you had the agent and the manager right away and then you meet HBO? Like, how does that all work? Like, what are the details of how that unfolds? So Metropia, my first fucked up film that I crazy movie you should watch it but again you have to be intoxicated I mean somehow to sort of appreciate it fully you know went to Tribeca it it opened in Venice and it went to Tribeca and I had representation after that you know De Niro had just started Tribeca film which is his distribution so I met with him and he bought he actually bought Metropia and at that time I, I had representation I had agents uh, i was with gersh and when sundance happened <laughs> what happened i had had general meetings and so on in hollywood nothing had led to anything it was just talk 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 and the the story is this with sundance so it was funny because i did not expect to win i went back my daughter she didn't like the altitude so i went back to la to celebrate my birthday so friday came and my phone rings i'm standing with champagne it's 11 in the evening my daughter has fallen asleep and it's me, my wife, my brother, and it's the head of Sundance, not Robert Redford, but someone else who says, Tarek, where are you? I'm like, I'm in LA. He's like, what? You have to come back. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're winning tomorrow. You're winning, you're winning the grand prize. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I was like, I was totally dumbstruck. I was like, and I knew what it meant. I knew I understood what that meant. So. And, and the crazy thing was, you know, the film premiered when Trump was inaugurated and he put the Muslim ban, mm-hmm. you know, right off. That was his first decision, Muslim ban, you know. Mm-hmm. And here is a beautiful story about America that just, you know, pe- people complain about America in Europe, like, eh, eh, eh. you know, what I love about America, this is, this is what happened. So next morning, I drink that bottle of champagne, as you can imagine. So I wake up next morning with a huge hangover, rush to the airport, forgets my passport. This woman standing in front of me, like an African-American woman who's like, you need a passport to be able to to come in, you know, to to board the plane. And I said, listen, I'm winning Sundance and I forgot my passport. And she said, she just looked at me and she said, I'm going to get you on that plane. And it's going to be uncomfortable because we have to go through your records and we have things here, but I'm going to put you on that plane. Mm -hmm. And just get goosebumps thinking about it now because that's America, you know? And when I came back with the prize to LA on Monday, people were demonstrating for ending the Muslim ban, you know, in the airport when I came and it was just filled with people. And I just, you know, just realized like, wow. This is what this country is. It's so diverse. It's so much ideas, you know, it's such possibilities, you know, like someone like a kid, half Egyptian kid can make it in America. I mean, that's the dream, you know? So, I mean, the, the difference was that my itinerary, because I had already had general meetings the, the week after, and then I was going to go back to Sweden, but my Agents and my manager called me and said, hey, Tarek, you have to postpone. I mean, people want to meet you. And I just saw how the itinerary changed from, you know, 
some, you know, intern into sort of the head of the studio. I know that we have to move to our final questions, but I know Auric has like 45 more questions to ask. So Auric, what do you want to do? <sighs> yeah, I guess now that you're like, you're at this place in your career where, you know, you've, you've kind of, you've done a little bit of everything. You've, you've, you've been at the highest peak of filmmaking. What is it now that you're, you're looking to, to, to conquer? I mean, what's, what's the next thing? Like, are you like batting down offers to do like Marvel movies and focusing on your own art? Or like, is it, is it that idealistic of a situation? Or like, what, what does your world look like now that you're at this place where you're at? You know, I think that I, I, first of all, I've had, I've met with amazing people. I mean, with in, in, in Hollywood. I mean, I met with Kevin Feige and with all these great, amazing people that are doing amazing things. But I knew that right after the contract, I knew I had to do my own film again, something I had written in Arabic and so on. So I, I went and shot a film in Istanbul that I'm very excited about. I'm just wrapping up the post-production of that film. And to me, I was, you know, John Hurt, that was one of my favorite actors that passed this last, you know, I think it was a week ago. I heard an interview with him where he said this quote, there are no small parts, there's just small actors. And I believe the same thing about filmmaking is that it's not about the scale of the film. It's about the story and about the possibility in the story. And one of the things now, after Parasite won Best Picture, there is no, you know, we are all in a, a place where any film can become best film. You know what I mean? So for me, it is about if I feel moved by the story. I always tell filmmakers that come to me and, you know, young filmmakers that are still struggling and say, how, how, how do you make your first film? And I always say to them, do you have to? And they say, no, I don't have to. No, I'll don't do it then. If you don't have to, don't do it. You have to feel that you have to make a film because it is a big sacrifice and it's a big struggle. And it's also wonderful. And it's also amazing to make film. And for me, film is very serious in the sense that we give people hope. For me personally, it was like that. When I was a kid, you know, when things were tough around me, I could go to the cinema, I could buy this ticket to somewhere else. You know, I could be someone else for two hours. And that's a huge responsibility as a storyteller and as a filmmaker, that you have the possibility to give that chance to people to experience a different world, to be a different person. And we as filmmakers, we a lot of times take that for granted. And, you know, we talk about careers. I think in a way it's not about, it's not a career. It's not a career. It's like, it is almost like being a fireman or a doctor. You are a filmmaker. You know, you are that, you are that 24-7. You, you, you sort of live and dream and wake up and, you know. You, so in that way, I don't see my career as some linear thing. I, I think that it was amazing to do, even to do an episode of Westworld was an amazing you know, <clears throat> one of my ma most magical things was working with Ed Harris in the middle of the night, you know, conceiving the scene between him and his daughter and just, you know, being with these amazing actors and just creating sort of a reality. So I don't, I don't see myself that I am at some special place or anything, you know, I'm, you know, of course, I'm worried like everyone else, like, yeah, well, will I be able to always live of this? 
you know, will I always be able to have this as a professional career, you know, but I don't take that for granted, but I, but I, I wouldn't mind making small films. I don't, I don't see that as, and that's why, like, I don't see the contractor as a big film. I see it as a story that is important to me personally. I think that like, you know, I, I feel for this guy, I can identify with him. And that's sort of my motivation. I, and then, of course, it's fun, but it's an abstraction. The numbers are all an abstraction. How many people that will see this film? Of course, it will be probably 100 times more people that will see the contractor than that saw the Nile Hilton incident. But that's an abstraction. I mean, I won't meet 2 million people. I'll meet the same guy that says, oh, I saw the film. It's great. Or it's shit. You know, it will be the same kind of interaction, like on a personal level. We only have three minutes, so I think we should do this one question, which is my favorite, and it's what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Or the corollary of that yeah. is what advice would you give our listeners? Yeah, I think the best filmmaking advice is if your story is one plus one equals two, you shouldn't tell that story because one plus one is two. Everyone knows that. So you're wasting two hours of people's precious time to tell them what they already know. But if your story equals one plus one equals three, then I'll listen to you for as long as you need. And if you can convince me that that's true, that's worth it, right? Wow. Well, then final, final question. Is making movies hard? It's so hard. It's so hard. And that's why it's so much fun. I've been writing down little quotes because we, we name our show something, ref, you know, <laughs> reflecting the content. And I wrote, it's not a career. I wrote, you're defending film. I wrote effective film. I wrote, <laughs> and the responsibility of being a filmmaker, all these things are just really palpable. And thank you. This is a really yes, wonderful thanks. conversation. What I'm trying to say is thank you. Thank you. We could have talked to you for <laughs> another you. hour easy and never gotten bored. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice, nice podcast. I love your podcast. So uh, uh, thanks. thanks so much. <laughs> Shout out to people, how they can support you. How do you, I mean, obviously to go see the contractor, but how can... How would you like people to support you at this moment? Oh, I mean, watch the film and try to watch it in a cinema because it is a cinematic experience. It's made for the cinema. And support your local cinemas. And do, do you have a Twitter or a Facebook or Instagram, any of that stuff? I have Instagram and my Instagram is crazy. It's called Ivan Bon and it's the, the, the bad, the, the villain from Metropia. It's Ivan and then B-A-H-N, Iban Bahad. And that's my Instagram. <laughs> nice. It's a, it's a total mix. You can see sort of behind the scene pictures from Westworld. And most of the pictures is of my daughters, my favorite oh, subject to take sweet. pictures of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Tarek? Just that we both message each other afterwards because we do that when we get really excited about a guest. <laughs> and I think I just remember, like, if we're sitting and smiling and watching someone talk, like, it's a good show. If we're just listening to them and I don't feel like, oh, I'm trying to interrupt them. I'm trying to keep the conversation going. What's my next question? You know, and I'm just actually just listening to what they have to say. Then I know it's a good show. And that's how I felt. I remember just like sitting there head in hand smiling at him. He's the kind of filmmaker you want to support. And you could tell that he's all heart when it comes to art. What did you think? 
Well, it's so funny because he, you know, he's talking about like his trajectory as a filmmaker and like, you know, started with smaller budgets and then a little bit bigger and then like, oh, this was a really small budget, only three million. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, <laughs> holy fuck, I would kill to make a three million dollar movie. Like three movies, so, three movies, yeah, six movies. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so it's so funny because I think like he's had success his whole career. Like, you know, like his first movie was sold to Robert De Niro. Like he, he's just was off to the races at an early age yeah. in his career, his filmmaking life. And like, you know, I think like for some reason I was listening to him and I was feeling like, yeah, I can go out and do it too. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, and so it was so infectious, but it's like, he's had all these things that are like one-offs. Like no one gets that. No one sells their movies to Robert De Niro. No one wins Sundance. It's like one person a year <laughs> wins Sundance. So it's like, you know, I can't really like see myself being him in the future because it's like I, I would need that special thing in order to like get to that level. Like I'd have to win Sundance or I don't know, whatever else I would need. Like, what's another thing I could have? Like, yeah, I don't know. Play like a humongous film festival or representation. I mean, he started out with Gersh, right? Like really early yeah. on. Yeah. Representation, I guess. I don't know. So I feel like I'm so far removed from where he is, but for some reason, talking to him, I imagine myself in, yeah, in 10, 20 years, I could be like that. I could be in that situation. Maybe I can. I don't know. Yeah. But it's like, I got to, but I think the thing is, it's like, you just got to make movies. And in order to be, if I want to become him, I have to make movies and, and I can't just sit on my ass waiting. So it's like, now I'm like contradicting myself from earlier. It's like, oh, I can't just wait for the perfect movie. I have to go make movies. You wait for the good enough movie. How about that? The, right. It's just exactly. good enough. The one that gets me excited enough. Anyways, you can tell this is one of my all-time favorite conversations. This was so good. I hope everyone liked it as much as I did. But yeah, what a what a great lots of lots of amazing bombs he dropped. Like lots of like I don't know, just fantastic things he said. Very quotable. But what also is quotable? No, I can't do it. I'm just going to segue to the new segment because <laughs> it's not quotable. But this week we do have an article. From Scott Roxborough about how the beta group is launching a 55K grant called the Series Makers that will be open to first or second feature filmmakers who've had their film screened at a quote unquote A list film festival and have a series they want to develop. This came to us via The Hollywood Reporter. Ulrich, what did you think about this article? I was uh, excited and enticed and intrigued. Like, oh, I am a first or second time filmmaker. And then I read the part that said A list film festival. And then I suddenly was like desperately looking for the list of what they consider to be A-list film festivals and said list does not exist. They have not posted that yet and said what they think an A-list film festival is. So I kind of like at first I felt like, oh, this is great. This is going to be open to a lot of people. And then they saw the A-list thing. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, are they going to basically count like Tribeca, South by Southwest, like Cannes, you know, whatever, Toronto? Venice, like, are those are the only A-listers? Are they going to open it down to, like, no. smaller? Okay, well, then to, then this is no fucking point, because those people <laughs> already have success. They don't need a $55,000 grant. People who don't get into those A-list film festivals are the ones who need the fucking grant, you fucking morons. Like, what is going on? <laughs> so stupid. I had a similar yet less dramatic reaction, but I did think to myself, like, first of all, making one or two features is no joke and it has nothing to do with the TV model. Like, it's like, why couldn't you be a neophyte and like just, you know, have write a really good script and have a really good pitch Bible and a really good presentation? Why do you also have to have made two features in a completely different medium than the grant is providing resources for? 
It just didn't make any sense to me. And then, yes, that A-list film festival thing really stuck at me because, yet again, we're bottlenecking an entire industry of curation on overworked and underpaid festival programmers who get hit with an onslaught of content and are unable to properly curate content. Like, that's not me saying that films that get programmed are not good. They're usually fantastic, but a lot is left on the table. So to base it off of this A-list film festival thing where there's so many restrictions and people who get shut out, it's just the status quo yet again. And uh, I don't know. It's a European situation. It's a European company. This is a European competition. So it's a different marketplace. And they rely a lot more on film festivals than we do. But yes, it's insulting. It's frustrating and insulting. Give support to filmmakers who don't already have the gates blown wide open for them. Yeah. And another thing that's really frustrating is that oftentimes filmmakers who get into the A-list film festivals They'll get into multiple A-list film festivals yeah. with the same film. And it's like, so that one film is taking up multiple spots f- that could have gone to multiple films. There, there should be some sort of like rule where if you get into Sundance, like you can't also get into South by Southwest. There should <laughs> if you be. Get into South by Southwest, you can't get also get into Tribeca. Well, you know? I complained about this on Twitter because Sun Valley Film Festival, their opening and closing night films were both from Sundance this year. And uh, I was like, what is, I don't understand that. I got hit back with a lot of responses because I'm friends with film festival people and they were like, well, we have to sell tickets and we have to support our organization and audiences want to see Sundance films or they want to see XYZ films. And that's fine. But do they have to both come from Sundance? Can you maybe just play an opening from Sundance and a closing from Cannes? Like, is there a world where we can at least diversify? What top level film festivals we're getting sloppy seconds from? Like, I just don't, it, the whole thing is weird and bothersome. And also, why not just find a way to eventize local films and promote them like hell and use community organizations and don't just rely on Sundance titles to sell tickets? Yeah, or titles that are already got distribution, you know, like, like yeah. does Come On, Come On, that's already like got its whole path laid out for it. Does it have to be at film festivals? Does it really have to be taking up a slot, you know, that could have gone to another movie? You know, I know. And then that goes back to the same thing. We've got, we have to sell t- tickets. We have to sell fucking get people's butts in seats. And of course, everyone was the, the theater was filled for that movie at Heartland. But like, you know, it's like there's got to be. Some give and take where, you know, it's, it's not only it's that. It's not in competition you know? with the true indie filmmaker screening at the same time. Well, it isn't. That should you know? be hard. But no, but I mean, like, not in a festival competition, but you shouldn't be playing at the same time as Come On. Come. Right. That right. should be it. Like, that should not be allowed. That should be out. I'm not trying to, like, cry about something that happened already that's, like, you know, done and done. Like, <laughs> but yes, it's true. It should, I shouldn't have no, had to I, have my movie played across. The I had the same <laughs> issue. I played Nashville. I played Nashville with Speed of Life, and four people were in the room. Not just a one screening, all three screenings, oh, wow. only oh, four wow. people. Wow. And yes, that could have been on me. Maybe I didn't promote enough. My, but then it's like, what was I screening against? You know? And Did you check? No, I just have so... It <laughs> would be such a better so story. <laughs> <laughs> I should... Okay, sorry. What came out in 2019? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll make up a movie. Uh, a funny. No, and it, I think it's, all, it's, on, it's on the filmmaker. It's on the festival. But I will say this. Like I always say, if you give filmmakers a ticket split, 
and they know that they're going to get a piece of the pie, they will promote like hell and they will get people to be at that screening. If you're even if they don't live in the area, for sure, if you're if the festival is getting all the money, of course, filmmakers are going to be like, well, they'll promote, they'll promote. Filmmakers are not getting a split of that, so they're not going to waste their time and energy when they're exhausted. Especially if they've already had their premiere. If like their premieres already happened, they've already had everyone come out and see the movie. Like it's already gone well. It's like they they don't necess- if it's like the fifth or fourth film festival. It's like do you really feel like like trying to like spend days and days and hours and hours of your life like you know adventizing a movie in a city that you don't even know anyone in? We're you not going to get like, any p- part of the ticket split. No. Yeah, no. and and like and that's that's a hard ask like to start in a market that you have no connections to try to like promote something you know it's it's difficult yeah anyways i think we got to go on to our listener question for the week you know jeff wrote this to us a long time ago and we're sorry for taking so long (laughs) to get to it i actually thought that jeff was trying to get on the show i didn't realize there was a question because it was a very long email you know not trying to put shade on you or anything jeff it's a wonderful sweet email really thank you for sending it but we can't read the whole thing because it's very very long so we've excerpted it so this is this is the the meat, the juicy meat of uh, of Jeff's email. So Jeff, Jeff Ry- writes, Ryano, Ray. Jeff Ryano, yes, thank you, Jeff. First off, thank you. You're welcome. I just discovered your podcast a few weeks ago, and I must say it's been very informative. I've learned so much in a short amount of time. I'm truly grateful, and I hope you keep up the good work. Not only am I hooked, but also my closest friend, who is a writer director, is now hooked as well, thanks to my recommendation. Well, that's amazing, Jeff. Thank you so much. Now on to the question. We have proven that we can make something successful. So he's talking about his movie that, they, that they've made, or their movies. We have proven that we can make something successful at a low cost, and now we're hoping to solicit bigger budgets in the future. I'm sure we can't be the only people out there that are learning as we, are go, or go, as we go along. We just want to make the right moves. That includes representation, distribution, and how to properly solicit for future projects. Do you have any advice or perhaps know someone we could talk to that could point us in the right direction? Liz, any ideas here? This is the thing that we're all struggling with. What do you think? I wrote a few things down. Don't. Okay, so we're talking about representation, distribution, and just growing your career. I would say take representation out of the equation. Don't chase representation. Representation will come to you. And I know we say that and we poke holes in that all the time, but it's going to be a distraction from making the content. What listeners aren't hearing is that Jeff tells us the story of a lot of extremely low budget projects that they have produced where they got a lot of, you know, they've been gathering audiences and accolades for the past few years. But representation is not going to go after you unless you play a top tier film festival at that budget level. They're just going to undervalue you and see they're not, they're going to discount you. So don't let it waste your time. I would say, keep going. Don't, do not rest on your laurels. Like actually keep on making content. Don't stop have a sense of reality about your place in the marketplace. I think I get pitches from a lot of filmmakers who are like, I'm award winning and people love my movie. And it's like, that is meaningless. Like that's meaningless. You will be of value if you're looking for commercial evaluation, you will be of value when it is so apparent that you are in demand. And the awards of lower tier film festivals and like your great aunt Denise are meaningful to you, but they're not meaningful for your commercial successful career. And if you're talking about leveraging things, those things, they don't have a place. So just have a sense of reality and humility about where you are. Focus on making relationships and not deals. 
if you're growing a career, it's all about the long-term strategy. But I, th- I think my big takeaway that's going to be the continuity from the beginning of this podcast is start attaching higher profile crew members to your projects. They are the, utilize the networks of people as you grow. So have mentors, find mentors, get higher profile producers, get DPs who are in demand, get production designers who are in demand. You can't grow and move the mountain by yourself. You have to bring in other people who are going to help you grow that career. That's a lot of me talking. Ulrich, what do you think? Ah, okay. I have a lot to say about this. So I think firstly, like, you know, for a long time, the representation thing, like I I was always saying the same thing as you, Liz, that like, you know, it'll, it'll find you when, when you're ready for it. But then I talked to a manager recently and she basically said the opposite. She was like, what, you think that like, they're just going to find you when it's, they're just going to pick you out of of a haystack? Like, like you could have value and not have one Sundance, you know, like there, there could be something that you can offer a manager or an agent that doesn't, that would, would not be something that they could see, you know, openly and then, and therefore if hunt you're you down. A writer, I think if you're a writer, there are, I doubt the director pathway, but it's, I have a differing point of view with you. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she was just saying that like, you should, you should put yourself out there, you know, like if you've got something that's going on, like if you've got like a movie coming out or you have something that you can talk about that's noteworthy, that's of, of the time. Put yourself out there, like reach out and, you know, just see if you can get connected to anybody and like ask your friends who have representation, like, you know, like get connected, get introduced to people who might be able to, you know, like even answer some questions, you know, and like that could start the ball rolling and time it with something that's noteworthy. So you can like actually point them to something that, you know, they can be impressed by. And then at the same time, you know, have scripts ready, you know, and and this is from the writer side of things. Like have scripts ready that you can like show them. They're like, oh, here, here, here's some proof, some samples, some proof of concepts that you should check out. You know, I think that combined with the the movie coming out is like a good approach. That was her advice. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm gonna try to do that. That's like part of my plan. We'll see how it goes. But I I think th- the more important thing is just growing your size of your projects. So like you know if you're if you're like making a one thousand dollar movie or like a $20,000 movie or whatever, like just like eke up your, your, your budget level a little bit each time or like try to make something that's of a higher level each time you go and like reach out to new people, like raise a little bit more money, you know, like just sort of build your, I don't know, your worth, I guess. It's, it's kind of like the Nelms brothers. Like they had a really great trajectory, like where they were starting, they started making like super low budget, like $20,000 features. Then they did like a, Fifty or a hundred thousand dollar feature, then they did like a two fifty thousand dollar feature, and then all of a sudden they were like making like close to a million, and it sort of just kind of happened naturally from what it sounded like with them. It was like they just were able to raise more money. Then they were at a film festival with a movie, and then somebody had had like five hundred thousand dollars or something they wanted to make a movie with, and they met them and liked their movie, and you know they went they went off. So that's like kind of like ideal and super random and whatever like you know but i think you have to be in the position where you can meet these people who might want to partner with you and you know might be able to be the next piece of the puzzle like you're saying like building your team building your 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 crew it's like it it doesn't necessarily just have to be like on set crew it can also just be like executive producers or supporters or just people who are aware of you as a filmmaker who want to be a part of what you're doing and like the type of movies you're making so just Keep on being open to meeting, making new friends and 
I don't know. It's it's tough. Like I'm, I'm. This is what I'm. Everyone's trying to figure this out. Like Liz is trying to figure this out. I'm trying to figure this out. We're all trying to figure this out, and it's it's the hardest thing to do. But I think like you leverage, like trying to leverage what you have in the right way is smart. But you don't want to sound like Liz said, like everybody else who just like you know everyone's an, a, an award winning filmmaker. You know, it's not like a special thing. You know. I think, and I know we're we're going really long, so we have to wrap this up. But both of our answers are colored by our status at this exact moment. Like I've been rejected by reps and it's been heartbreaking and I don't want to put myself out there anymore. So I'm just saying like, hey, don't be distracted by that. But Ulrich's a lot more optimistic and that he's about to go out to reps. So he's giving that a (laughs) chance, you know? So I think it depends on where you are and how cynical you are and how pessimistic you are. But ultimately, it sounds like we're just saying keep going and, and grow. Yeah. I also want to shout out in Jeff's movie, The Last Frankenstein, which he starred in by director Dave Weaver, who this movie played at multiple film festivals with the alternate. And I actually was online watching Dave receive an award for The Last Frankenstein. Same night, I won a couple of awards for the alternate. So it was really fun to get this email and like see like the connection for another filmmaker who was kind of at the same level as me making made a movie that was around the same budget, you know, and like playing the same kind of film festivals and you know, it had a lot of success. So I feel like, you know, they're in a really good position. You know, I'm not sure what the distribution deal is that they got for The Last Frankenstein or like where it's going to be released. But that movie feels like the kind of movie you would see on Shudder, you know, or the sci-fi channel or something. So like, hopefully wherever it lands, like that, that exposure is going to be a good jumping off point for them to get to the next level with their next project. Well, you can always send us a question, comment or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the ISA, the International Screenwriters Association. We love them. They offer networking, consultation courses, contests. Go to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free. Thanks to Tarek Saleh for coming on the show. Sam Anaya from Katrina Juan PR for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing all the editing. Thanks to Eric Toms, our producer, for being fantastic. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you all next week. And lastly, we talk about our films and uh, no, we don't talk about that. And lastly, we answer a um, 